gonna play a little game together. Uh, I'm going to read a quote to you, and then I want you to try and figure out what you think this quote is about, okay? Now, I don't want you to yell it out. I want you just to keep it to yourself and just do a little mental uh, assessment. What do you think this quote is a reference to, okay? So here is the quote. It melts in your mouth like chocolate. The good stuff is real smooth. It's just like a piece of candy, okay? So keep it to yourself. But I want you just to think about what do you think that quote is a reference to? Well, I wanna welcome you here today. Uh, We are so glad that you're here. My name is Jeremy, I'm the lead pastor. And uh, wherever you are, if you're with me in the room today or you are watching or listening online or via podcast, so glad that you are part of this with us. We're continuing this series that we've been in called Grounded. And in this series, we are asking a simple question, where is God? And so we're looking at all of creation to figure out what has God done to reveal himself to us? How do we know where God is, what God is up to based on what God has already revealed? And we've looked at a number of things. We've looked at the sky, looked at fire and sweat and tears, and hopefully you are seeing and experiencing God in new ways. And and so uh, the, the reality is that in all of these, God is closer than you might think. We often think, oh, God's out there far away. But as we study creation, we're realizing God is near to us. And so I encourage you to get your journals out. And if you've been uh, going along with us, we're in week five now. And this journal uh, takes you all the way through the series. And we encourage you to take notes about what you're learning, about what God is saying to you. Uh, Use this for your own study and for your time in life group as well. Uh, well, uh, as I said, we're, you know, we're getting to a new topic today. I'm going to go back to the quote we began with. Uh, let's read it again. It melts in your mouth like chocolate. The good stuff is real smooth. It's just like a piece of candy. What if I told you that quote was a reference to dirt? Yep, that's how we're getting into today's topic. Uh, we're going to talk about dirt today. I'm just going to leave that hanging for a second. We'll get back to that. What's going on there? Uh, now, I want to read a poem for us today. We've been doing a poem each week to get our imaginations going. Last week, I read something from Shel Silverstein. Found out we have a lot of Shell fans in our community. And so I'm going back to Shell today. I got another one uh, he wrote called Dirty Face. Now, not only does this one talk about dirt, it also says my name in it which you're gonna think I made it up, I didn't. Uh, And it references our topics of the last two weeks. So this is like one perfect poem all wrapped up into one. So here's what uh, Shel Silverstein wrote. This is called Dirty Face. Where did you get such a dirty face? My darling, dirty-faced child. I got it from crawling along in the dirt and biting two buttons off Jeremy's shirt. I got it from chewing the roots of a rose and digging for clams in the yard with my nose. I got it from playing with coal in the bin and signing my name in cement with my chin. I got it from rolling around on the rug and giving the horrible dog a big hug. I got it from finding a lost silver mine and eating sweet blackberries right off the vine. I got it from ice cream and wrestling and tears and from having more fun than you've had in years. Let's pray together. Well, God, would you help us to find you in the dirt today? As we explore your creation, would you reveal yourself? Would you open our eyes, not only to see you, but to experience you in new ways? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, if you would get your Bibles out, we're going to go to John chapter 8. John is in the New Testament, four books in. Uh, I want to encourage you to get your spot there. So if you brought a physical Bible with you, that's awesome. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. If you have a Bible app uh, on a phone or a device, I encourage you to get that out as well. And we'd love for you, like we do every week, to read along for yourself, to see the text for yourself. And, and we're going to get into this. Now, like we've been doing throughout this whole series, we want to invite you guys to ask questions, to, to go deeper with us in this topic. And so we encourage you to go on to Slido. Uh, you can do it uh, really now or anytime until Wednesday. Enter the word grounded, and you can see the questions that others have asked. You can vote for those if you want those to go to the top, or you can ask your own question. Then on Wednesday, uh, I will uh, film a response video to a number of those questions, and we've been doing this each week. Hopefully, you've uh, checked out our Facebook to see those videos where we uh, dive into your questions, uh, and it's been a lot of fun for me to, to go deeper with you guys in that way. Now, today's topic presents a challenge because when we talk about dirt, we're not starting at a neutral idea like, oh, dirt, you know, take it or leave it. We already have a negative idea of dirt. Now, you might not think that. I go, I don't have a negative idea of dirt, uh, but you probably do. If I say something is dirty, is that a compliment? No. What if I say it's soiled, right? Even worse. I've got young kids. When you say something got soiled, it is not a good thing, right? And, and so we, we use these words and we understand they're not used in a positive sense. Now, depending on what you do for work or maybe your hobbies, a lot of us don't even touch dirt on a regular basis. And for some of us, maybe you're like, I can't remember the last time I just had my hands, you know, deep into dirt. It's just not something that we necessarily have to do a lot. And so a lot of us would go, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with this. But how do we start to see this differently? If we're going to look for God in the dirt, how do we begin to open our minds to something else? I came across a picture that had a great quote in it. It says, from the dirt, a flower must grow. That's a simple concept, maybe even a little bit cliche, but we understand that. Like, yeah, a flower with all the beauty comes out of the dirt. There's an Italian song that says, nothing grows from diamonds, flowers grow from the muck. And again, I like that image that we don't necessarily think much of dirt, but, but when you be, begin to realize that things like flowers and, and beauty can come out of it. Now, the closest most of us get to, to seeing something good in dirt is when you walk by that dirty car and you see like the back window is just caked in dirt and the inner artist in you comes out. You know what I'm talking about? Like all of a sudden you're like, I gotta draw something, I gotta write something, I gotta do something on that vehicle. There's just something going on there. And so all of a sudden you have this inspiration strike, you know, when you walk past that vehicle and you've, you've gotta do something. And, and some people take this really to extremes. And there's a guy in Russia that this is his art. And so I'll show you a couple of things that he has drawn. This is the back of a truck. And, and all he's using is dirt. He, he just sees the dirt and then he brings it to life as he moves the dirt around. There's another one that he made, uh, an entire scene of, of underwater, you know, and you go, wow, that's, that's amazing creativity. Or my favorite one that he's done, the alligator. <laughs> I just think about like the truck driver who's, you know, getting a bite to eat, comes back out and he's like, what? What happened to my truck? That's amazing, you know? And, and then you're like, how do I keep that? Don't rain, you know, I don't, I don't wanna lose that. And, and it, it really, it's beauty coming out of dirt, right? And you go, yeah, that, that is actually kind of a cool thing. And, and so here's my question today. If, if we as people can create that kind of beauty out of dirt, what can God do with dirt? What, what could God do that we couldn't do that, that, that maybe would reframe 
how we think about dirt. Well, I, I want to show you because I, I think this is incredible. Now, you get to the opening pages of Scripture in the book of Genesis, and you find a lot about dirt. Now, again, it might surprise us, and maybe you've read through Genesis, and, and you've never noticed the emphasis placed on dirt. But I want to show you uh, how, how significant this is. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, says this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, literally, what we're seeing here is that God decides, I want to create people. So what does God do? He grabs a handful of dirt, breathes into it, Adam appears. You know, and you're like, wow, that's incredible. But, but I want you to notice the details. This is how God does it. Now, again, this is not like a, just a little small detail. In Hebrew, the word for dirt that is used in this passage is the word Adama, which might sound like Adam, which is where we get the English word Adam is from the literal Greek word for dirt. And so if you know a guy named Adam, you can go tell him today that his name means dirt. This isn't that creative. God's literally like, I got some dirt. I breathe life into it. What should I call you? I will name you dirt. And, and he's like, oh, okay, cool. And then today we're like, well, that sounds kind of weird. Let's call him Adam. You know, we'll, we'll make it a new word out of it. And it sounds really cool. That literally is just the word for dirt. That God makes Adam out of dirt. Let me read to you the way one theologian breaks this down. His name is Warren Weers, Norman Wearsbuck. It says, God fashions the first human being by taking the dust of the ground into his hands, holding it so close that it can share in the divine breath and inspiring it with the freshness of life. It is only as the ground is suffused with God's intimate breathing presence that human life, along with the life of trees and animals and birds, is possible at all. God draws near to the earth and then animates it from within. Now, this is a significant part of the creation story here. That, that, uh, of all the ingredients God could use to create us, to create people, God only uses one ingredient. Dirt, that's the only thing. So what, what does it take to create life out of a, you know, to create a human life? Just dirt and God's breath. Like that's all you need. Those two things, put them together, you get human life. It's a significant detail. Now, again, this is in contrast to the rest of creation. If you read through the opening story about creation, you find that God doesn't use dirt for other things. He speaks everything else into creation. But he doesn't speak Adam into creation. He takes dirt that he'd already made, and then he breathes his life into dirt. And so you have this unique property about humans in relationship to the dirt. Now, when you think about all this, here's the, the thing I'd encourage you to write down, and this is one of the things you find very early on in Scripture, is that God breathes life into dirt. Now, again, this might sound a little bit strange to us, but until you begin to see this, you're going to miss a lot of the connections that we find throughout Scripture, that God takes something as apparently meaningless and, and, and stupid to us as dirt, and he breathes life into it. And you're going, why would God do that? Why would God take dirt and breathe life into it? Yeah, again, this is going to teach us something about God. Now, you may think, well, that's just, you know, the story of Adam. Uh, the, the, you know, you're, you're, you're overemphasizing dirt. Well, you actually find this throughout the whole story. Uh, if you read elsewhere in chapter 2 in Genesis, it says it like this in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Basically, work the dirt. 
So Adam, you came out of the dirt, and now your one sole job, once you're around, is to take care of it. Go and work the soil, work the dirt. You are now responsible for the dirt in Eden. Again, it's this weird relationship. Came out of the dirt, going right back to it. You have a connection with the dirt. If you fast forward a little bit, you get to Adam and Eve's kids. And you see even in that story, dirt continues to play a significant role. Genesis 4, verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's a very strange sentence. Literally, the dirt is the one crying out to God. When there is an injustice, when there is a, an unjust loss of life or taking of life, this should never have happened. What is God gonna do about it? Who's the witness that cries out about it? It's the dirt. Literally, the dirt is a part of this. And you're going, that's kind of strange. Why, why is the dirt involved? And yet, this is the way that the narrative describes it. There is a connection to life and dirt. Now, that might sound a little bit weird to you to go, I just don't see dirt like that. I don't, I don't you know, think about dirt and life. As I was working on this message, I learned a word that I didn't know previously. It's the word geophagy. Now, it's not a word you probably use a lot. Uh, I certainly didn't use this word a lot, but the word geophagy refers to the craving someone has to eat dirt. This is where our opening quote came from today, right? There is a whole thing about a desire to eat dirt. Now, I began researching this. Best as I can tell, it affects two types of people, toddlers and pregnant women. Don't know what those two have in common. I'll leave that to others to figure that out. But toddlers and pregnant women uh, both are on record uh, about craving dirt and, and maybe others, but at least those two are, are, are dominant. Now, this has been recorded for thousands of years that people have desired to eat dirt. There's a debate about this if you read it online. Some people argue this is an eating disorder. Other people say this is a brilliant way to get the nutrients that your body needs. And depending on where you read and what source, uh, you may get any you know, version of those two extremes. I even read one blogger uh, who wrote a whole article about dirt as the missing superfood. And I'm going, all right, that's a little bit strange, but literally it was like all you need in life is more dirt in your diet, you know? And, and I'm like, man, this is so weird. And Began having conversations about this, like, this, this is strange, you know, is this really a thing? And got into a conversation with my mom. So my mom, like, have you ever heard of this, you know, geophagy? And uh, my mom says, yeah, well, I never told you this, but um, when I was pregnant with you, I'm like, yes. She's like, I crave dirt. You ever have your parents, like, drop something on that, like, <laughs> when you're an adult? And you're like, why did you never tell me? Like, that shapes my entire existence, mom. You crave dirt? while you're pregnant with me? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, I gotta tell people that. She goes, well, just tell the church I didn't actually eat the dirt, I just craved it. Okay, mom, that's still weird, but all right. I'll, I'll tell them you didn't actually eat the dirt with me, you just craved it. And now I'm like, so much of my life is making more sense now. You know, I got things I didn't understand about myself. Okay, uh, but this is weird to me at least, but maybe you are the one that like, yeah, I like it, you know, it's, it's pretty good. Don't knock it till you try it. Or, or maybe you've craved it, but you haven't given into it. There is something there. And I can't help but wonder, okay, not to get overly weird, is there something our bodies are connecting us back to? 
If, if scripture tells us that we came out of dirt and that God breathes life into dirt, is there something weirdly hardwired into our DNA that is craving dirt? I don't know, I'll leave that to much smarter people, but there's some interesting connection there about life and dirt. Now, if you're with me in John chapter eight, I, I wanna take you to a story about a day in the life of Jesus where we see Jesus is going to change our view of this in John chapter eight. Now, this is a passage I, I preached on at Christmas time. If you're with us at our Christmas services, uh, I, this was one of the stories that I told. And, and, and yeah, I wanna approach it from a different uh, angle today. And just, so just in case you know, yeah, I'm aware that I, I use the same story at Christmas. You can preach the Bible stories over and over again. I don't, it's like fair game as a preacher, just so you know. And so I'm gonna go back to it, but we're gonna go a whole different angle than I took it at Christmas time. So if you wanna hear that uh, story, you can watch that message if you weren't here. Um, but I, I wanna go a different angle with it today and look at the story from a different vantage point. So John chapter eight, I will begin reading in verse two. It says, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? It's a dicey story. And yet this is one of the uh, more well-known passages in all of scripture. People often, uh, even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard this story before. What you might not realize is the context around the story. And so the other details that really help this story come to life when you understand what was going on around this story. Now, this is in chapter eight. If you go to chapter seven, you find out that this story takes place uh, on the tail end of what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of the big seven uh, Jewish feasts that they had each year. They had spring feasts, they had fall feasts. If you wanna read all about them, go to Leviticus 23 for some light reading today. Uh, and you can read all about the different kind of feasts that they had. This is one of the big seven feasts that they had. And what would happen is for eight days, it would be like this massive party. And so all kinds of people would come into Jerusalem. They'd make this little pilgrimage and they would all be in Jerusalem for eight days to together celebrate this feast. Now, I want you to picture this though, because this is important. What happens when you have an influx of people into a city that is not designed to house or you know, sustain that many people? Well, it turns into a different type of environment. You have these makeshift tents and shelters all around the city because there's nowhere for all of these people to sleep. Now, I want you to envision, uh, it's just kind of like an old school Coachella, if you will, okay? So they're like all gathered around. They have, you know, for a few days, they're all gonna party together. It's not music, uh, but they're gonna gather in. This is the equivalent for them of let's all get there and, and we'll have this experience together. Now, this is also how, like Coachella and like our story, how when you have that many people and you have all this going on, sometimes someone might wake up in someone else's tent. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm talking about that. And so every now and then when you have these kind of environments, like weird things happen like that and you go, yeah, that was just kind of a bizarre thing. And that apparently has happened here, that this woman wakes up in the wrong tent and all of a sudden all the religious leaders are like, shut the party down, let's show what's going on here. Let's bring this woman to justice. But I want you to notice, they only bring the woman. I don't know about you, but uh, for her to be guilty of what they're accusing her of, it takes at least two people. Where's the guy? Well, that's when you begin to realize this isn't about justice. 
This isn't about uh, righting a moral wrong. This is about using leverage to take down Jesus. They are willing to use this woman as collateral in their pursuit of taking down Jesus. This has nothing to do with, hey, we're so offended that she was in someone else's tent, that she has done something that shouldn't be done. No, no, it's not about that at all. Now, yes, she is guilty of the sin they're accusing her of, but the, the fact that they're not bringing the guy out with her, the fact that just this woman is brought out shows you their real intent. And what you see here, and even today, that sometimes uh, in the mask of of religiosity, in the mask of spirituality, we can be the biggest hypocrites of them all. And here the religious leaders are bringing forward a guilty woman to Jesus. And yet their, their intentions are showing through even in the fact that they bring her only. But Jesus, nonetheless, has a PR issue on his hands. Because Jesus is not going to be able to get out of this one, as they're thinking it, with any, you know, there's no good way out. Now, again, this is not like, hey, it's just, you know, Jesus and this woman and his disciples. This is like party time. There are people everywhere. And so you have more people than normal around at the tail end of this festival. And so all these people, it just turns into a crowd quickly. And everybody's watching. You can imagine, you know, the party has stopped. Everyone's going, what is Jesus going to do? Next, keep reading in verse six. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now, the dominant question that I get asked all the time. People always ask, what did Jesus write? We don't know. Nobody knows what Jesus wrote. Uh, There have been, you know, books written about this. Nobody knows what Jesus wrote. It's speculation at best. But here's the overlooked question that we don't ask. What did Jesus use to write it? He used dirt. Why don't you consider this? This is the only example we have where Jesus ever wrote something down himself. It's the only time we know of, that Jesus himself wrote something out. And what does he use for the one time that he's gonna personally write something down? He uses dirt. He writes in the dirt. I I find that perplexing and also eye-opening. There is something going on here. Why is this the method that Jesus uses? Now, if you look at the details in the story, notice that they bring this woman. She is caught in the act of adultery, okay? So that's an important detail because most commentators and scholars would argue that she is brought in naked, okay? And so not to get overly graphic, but you have to understand this is designed to humiliate her. This is designed to be as, as you know, offensive, as shocking as can be, and also to up the ante on Jesus, that everybody's going to watch this scene. No one's going to walk by and not stop and go, oh, what is going on there? So they make this woman stand before a group, primarily of men, naked, in shame and humiliation. This is designed to be provoking. They have literally found the perfect scenario. They've got a crowd forming. Everyone's gonna stop and and go, what on earth is happening? And so Jesus is in this scene. They bring the woman in and they have her stand before them. Can you imagine the, the humiliation of that, the shame of that? But then I want you to notice the brilliance of every move Jesus makes. What's the first thing he does? As they're all, you know, gawking at this woman, Jesus Bends down. B 
begins to write in the dirt. Now, again, we don't know what he's writing, but I want you to think about this. If Jesus starts doing this, notice the entire mood, the entire moment changes. Everyone's up looking at this woman. Now all eyes go down. All eyes are now looking at the ground going, what is he writing? In one brilliant move, Jesus redirects everybody's gaze from this woman to something else. And you can imagine even in that moment, the woman begins to catch her breath, begins to feel that moment of relief to go, okay, what's going on here? What, what, could there be hope that I get out of this? Could there be a chance that I, I get to walk away from this? And Jesus brilliantly begins to write something. And I can just imagine everyone going, What's, what's he writing over that? I, I can't see what's he. And you can just imagine the whole conversation has changed. They're not Lord, what about this woman anymore. Everybody's trying to figure out what is Jesus doing? He's not saying it. He's just writing something. What is he writing? You get to verse nine. It says, at this, those who began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, while only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she asked, or she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. That last sentence, that last phrase, I think is the most redundant part of this whole story. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you think there is any way possible this woman could go back to her old life after this moment? After you have an experience with Jesus like this, how could she go back to the way things were? And yet you have both of these aspects here. Yeah, Jesus wants her to leave that life. That life is not going to be uh, you know, life-giving for her. That's not the way God had designed her. And so he says to her, look, you're caught up in something that is not helping you. It is not giving you life. It is taking life from you. Leave it behind. And yet my thought is, after an experience with Jesus like that, how could she possibly not want to leave it? How could she possibly think anything could compete with what she had just seen in Jesus? See, so often as Christians, as the church, we're really good at telling people, go now, leave your life of sin. And we focus on that. That's our message. Go now, leave your life of sin. Go now, leave your life of sin. And we focus so much on that. And that is certainly a part of it. If you are caught in sin, it is killing you. And Jesus wants you free of it. But notice that this comes after a life-altering moment with Jesus. See, I think we have neglected that part of the equation. That if we could introduce people to Jesus, and I believe wherever you're at today, whatever spectrum you're on, if you're just exploring Jesus, if you're skeptical about Jesus, I believe that if you have this kind of a life-altering experience with Jesus, you can never go back. You wouldn't want to. You'd go, what does my old life offer me that I have now seen in Jesus? There's nothing that can compete. And I think as the church, yes, we still need to tell people, sin will kill you in every possible way. But there is a moment where you meet Jesus and you don't want to sin like you used to want it. You don't want to go back to that old life. You have seen something else. And I think it's time for us to introduce more people to Jesus and then let Jesus be the one to tell them, hey, it's time to, to, to make a, a decision. It's time to go a different way. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, again, going back to the context, this is at the tail end of a feast. Now, this feast in, protect, in particular was focused on rain and water. 
Now, the reason why, it's the last feast they would have before winter. And so they're kind of getting ready, you know, for the whole winter, and then they're going to be back again at spring. But they know from now until they get together again, they need water. Now, again, we're removed from this because we don't think about the elements quite as much connected to the food that we eat. But in this day, they knew if we have a dry winter, we don't get crops. We don't get fed. We don't have what we need, not only to sustain us, but for our livelihood. And so the focus this entire week, uh, the Festival of Tabernacles, this one in particular, was about water. It was about going through the Old Testament, preaching about passages that talked about God's relationship to water. They would be praying, God, would you please send water for us? This would have been a huge emphasis. And so if you're at Coachella, you're listening to bands all day. What they would have been listening to here are people preach the scriptures about water. So they're having all these discussions uh, and the Pharisees would have been teaching about water and the significance of connecting water with God. Now, one of those passages that is, is more than likely a passage that they would have heard over and over again throughout the whole festival was a key passage in the Old Testament from the book of Jeremiah that talked about the connection between God and water. And so I wanna read for you Jeremiah 17, 13 and imagine this was in their head all week as they went through this festival, listening to this, thinking about water. Here's what Jeremiah wrote. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Oh, it's a passage about water, but did you notice right in the middle? Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Kind of an eerie connection, right? That at the end of a festival on water where this was likely a passage that would have been taught, Jesus bends down and begins to write something in the dust. So you begin to realize Jesus is doing something amazing here. Jesus is connecting dots for them in ways that they could not see. Now this is a passage about condemnation. Now notice the irony. These religious leaders are bringing a guilty woman before Jesus for Jesus to condemn her. Right, And they're justified in that sense. This woman is guilty. But notice what happens. Instead of Jesus siding with them and going, yeah, she is guilty, let's stone her. Jesus turns on them. And Jesus begins to show their issues, their sin, their faults. And it is an incredible reversal. And so you wonder, what did Jesus write? I don't know. If, if he's connecting Jeremiah 17, does he start to write people's names down that are in the, in the circle? People who he doesn't know, but he looks out and he goes, all right, Bob, writes Bob's name down. Steve, John, they're going, oh no, he knows me. He, he's writing my name in the dust. Have, have I turned away? You can imagine this moment changing when Jesus connects all of this. See, as we think about this story, what, what's going on here? You know what this reminds us of? And this is something that we have to just be truthful about, is that life happens in the dirt. You see, we might think, no, life happens away from the dirt and, and life happens once you get free of the dirt and, and I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna be a part of that. No, life happens in the dirt. 
And if we can just be honest for a second, we would all acknowledge this. Now, this is physically true. If you have young kids, your kids track dirt in the house. If you have a dog, your dog probably tracks dirt in the house. Maybe you're like me, and no matter how much you try and clean, dust follows you everywhere, and you can never keep up with it. I've got five young kids, and I feel like this is their role model at times, right? Like, how is it so dirty all the time? And yet what I know is that when you have kids, when you have life, life comes with dirt, And we can wish it weren't true, we can wish it weren't the case, but that's how life is. And it's metaphorically true as well. Those things about our life that we wish weren't there. Those failures that you have, that you experience, it's dirty. The disappointments that you have in your life, the regrets, the pain, the loss. See, life is more full of dirt than we might want to admit. And if we're honest, life happens in the dirt. And the temptation for us is to pretend like it's not true. To pretend like we can somehow live above it, we can live beyond it, it doesn't affect us. And we can try to live sterile lives away from the rest of the world. And if you ask most non-Christians, hey, what do you think about Christians? They'll tell you, oh, those are the ones that pretend, that are hypocritical, that act like they don't have the same stuff that everybody else does. Why is that? Because we're not comfortable acknowledging that we have dirt. And here's what I would encourage you. There is no spiritual hand sanitizer. Jesus doesn't offer it. Now we can want it. Hey, just give me something that I can just wipe my hands of it. I can move on. Jesus doesn't offer it. Instead, he promises to meet us in the dirt. See, he doesn't say, you gotta get this figured out. You gotta go clean yourself up. Get rid of the dirt in your life. Then come to me, then I will meet you there. And the problem is, a lot of the reason why Christians don't see God is because they're expecting, once I get free of this, once I remove all the dirt in my life, then I will see Jesus. And they are missing the fact that Jesus is already with them because Jesus meets us in the dirt. And when you begin to see this, you begin to see Jesus all around you, not just on your good days, not just when you feel dialed in spiritually, but on your worst days, on the lowest moments when you kick yourself for what you've just done, when you're ashamed of what you've just done. Those are the moments you can often find Jesus the easiest when you realize he's meeting you in your dirt and he is inviting you, just like this woman in John 8, to a different life, to a different moment, for that moment to be a catalyst for what the future is going to be. And when you see this for yourself, it opens the door for you to see this in others. Because all of a sudden, I don't have to just point out all the dirt in your life. I can start showing you Jesus in your dirt. Oh, you're going through that? You know what? Jesus is with you. He's going to meet you there. He's going to offer you something in the midst even of that. And it completely changes our posture. This woman in John 8 was brought in the the dirtiest, worst moment of her life, and Jesus forever changed it. Not expecting her to get cleaned up, not expecting her to be innocent, she wasn't, she was guilty. But in the dirt, he met her there and offered her a new way forward. So let me close with this idea. What if Christians were known for meeting people in their dirt instead of pointing it out? What if that's how they talked about us? Oh man, those Christians, you can be so honest with them. You can tell them exactly what's going on. You know what they'll do? They'll, they'll meet you there and they'll introduce you to Jesus in the midst of it. 
They'll show you what Jesus wants to do in the midst of your dirt. They're not afraid of dirt. It's, it's bizarre. What if that's how people talked about us? As opposed to going, oh, don't tell them the dirt in your life. Don't be honest with them. Don't show them that. Otherwise, they'll judge you. You know, the saddest things to me as a pastor, and just to be real transparent with you, how often I have people come to me and say, you need to preach against sin more. You need to point out this sin or that sin or this group of people who are sinning or that group of people that are sinning. You need to preach more against sin. You know what it sounds like to me? Sounds like those religious leaders bringing a guilty woman before Jesus. Yeah, she was guilty. These people might be guilty. But notice who Jesus sides with. It's not the people bringing the accused. And if you think about whose life changed that day, this woman was the one who forever was a different person. You know what I think didn't change that day? It was all the people who had rocks in their hands. They just put the rocks down until another time. They walked away for another opportunity. They didn't get the bigger message. See, what if we were a church who wasn't constantly bringing guilty people before Jesus, going, yeah, Jesus, accuse them, accuse them, accuse them. But we were the people going, hey, Jesus is here. Jesus wants to meet you. Jesus wants to offer you something better. Can I show you that? What would God do with a church like that? God breathes life into dirt. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you breathe life into us? Would you infuse us with what can only come from you? Show us that we don't have to get this figured out. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to remove all traces of dirt in our life before we can see you. We can see you right now, even in our worst moment. And we can also realize that you are offering us a different future, a different road to take. Not more of the same, but precisely in our worst, you offer us your best. So like John A., may we be that woman who has seen that you are there in the dirt and that you change everything. God, forgive us for the times we are holding rocks in our hands, for the times we are bringing guilty people in front of you, hoping and expecting you to accuse them. May we realize that we all have dirt in our lives and you're a part of meeting us there. May we join you in meeting others in their dirt. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.